Good morning, Maranatha. It's a, it's a holiday weekend, isn't it? You can sometimes tell by, uh, by, by people being here or gone. It's the beginning of summer, but it's also significant that we remember uh, those. This, this is not the same weekend as Veterans Day where we celebrate veterans. This is the weekend where we remember those who laid their lives down. And we can't ask those who laid their lives down to stand so that we can acknowledge them. Uh, but we can bow our heads and say, Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you would help us to never forget the men and women worldwide who have given their lives. We're especially thankful because of the, our country of origin, Lord, for those from our country who have given the ultimate sacrifice to, to build freedoms for us. Lord, we... We recognize for ourselves that our ultimate freedom comes in you, but we, we, are, we are grateful. And so help us throughout this weekend, Lord, in the midst of burgers and beaches and all that, to take a moment and to actually pause and remember the cost. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, all right. Um, that's okay. I'm going to pass on it. Um, so... Yeah, I had about 50 things I wanted to say at the beginning, and I can't remember a half of them. I do want to say this, though, that as we prayed for Tim and Kathy and Brian and his brother to go, um, seriously, it, it's, it's the right thing for us to do to, to support uh, these sorts of endeavors. We, we want to be missionally minded. Uh, we are missionally minded. We want to be missionally, we want our, our, our priorities to reflect our, and our actions to reflect our values. And so uh, I will never apologize for funding the work of the kingdom as it goes either to the community next door or to the ends of the earth. And so uh, give to support the work that the McLeans are doing and Brian and his brother will go and do it. It's important. And I know also I just want to add this, that Kathy has not been feeling well. And while we pray generally for them to go on, I just pray specifically, Lord Jesus, that you would heal my sister, that you would give her wholeness, Remove any infirmity, any sickness, even if it's as little as a cold. Uh, we want it all gone that she might travel um, with just a complete clear mind and focus and a heart that's, that's on fire for you. So fill her, Lord, with fire in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your Bibles, uh, if you will, to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus is right in the beginning of the Bible. You go Genesis, then Exodus. It's not hard to find. And then uh, it's toward the end of the book of Exodus. And I'm going to have kind of a, a, a story to tell this morning, but I'm going to really center it in on a verse or two. Um, really, the first verse is all you need to be able to grasp the, 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 the meat of this message. Um, but we're, we're gonna, I'm going to do a grand sweep of a story. And so um, just to kind of give you a, an idea of where we're going, I'm going to just highlight two verses in that chapter, verse 1 and verse 20, because they kind of give you a, a framework uh, for building on. So let's just look at that verse, and then I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll go through the story. So Exodus 32, verse, verse 1, as you see it here uh, in the ESV, says... Uh, when the people, and I'll, I'll go through this and give you context. So let's just hear it first. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, 
We do not, we do not know what has become of him. And then verse 20, this is much later in the story. Moses comes down from the mountain and deals with their behavior. It says he took the calf, the golden calf that they had made, and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. <laughs> and so, Lord, such a weird little story. We want to unpack it. We want to find out what it has to say about us and what it has to say about you and how we might square our lives, uh, that we'd be in right relationship with you, that we might feel uh, the, the, the weight of um, a deep relationship with you, but also the joy of right relationship with you. And so we ask that you would open your word up for us, that you would grant us understanding, Lord, that you would till the soil of our hearts, that if there are rocks and weeds and other things that would choke out your word, that you would eradicate and remove those and that the soil would be rich and vibrant and vital for growth. Start with my heart, Lord. Speak this word, even if it's through me, to me, that I might uh, have no other gods before you. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me give you some context this story. I'm going to tell you a story. It's, it's, it is bizarre, for sure. If I were to ask you this morning to draw God, you couldn't do it. If I just said, draw God, it's not, it's not doable. Uh, we might try to draw a picture of Jesus, but really, we don't even really know what Jesus looked like. Um, so uh, it's, it's too, you can't conceptualize this immense God in, in, a, in a drawing. But I want to tell you a story about... Uh, about some people who are near and dear to God's heart who, who forgot what God looked like and who he was and what they did about it. The story takes place uh, just mere months after God had rescued these people from 450 years of slavery in Egypt. Horrible, horrible slavery. So bad that the people were, I mean, it, it, it was so significant that it caused God to say, I can't take it anymore. And in the fullness of time, which God always operates in, he, he decides to do something about it through a man named Moses who providentially had been born into this time and grown up in the kingdom under the Pharaoh so that he was in the right place at the right time when he went out into the desert with preparation that he might have a relationship with Pharaoh that God could use. And God calls him in the context of a burning bush, gives him an assignment, sends him back into into Egypt and says, you're going to set my people free. Moses works in accordance with God's plan. Signs and wonders galore. Leads the people out of Egypt. After the people plunder the Egyptians, God says, take, take stuff. They're going to give it to you. And the, and the Egyptians are saying, fine, whatever. Gold, earrings, necklaces, just get out of here. These plagues are, we, we're done with this. We're done with you people. The sooner the better. And so off they go. Pharaoh pursues them. God opens the sea. The sea swallows up Pharaoh's armies and the, and, and the people make it across the other side to get into the desert to start this journey to the land of promise. And you get a few months into it and God is operating uh, in, in signs and wonders galore. You're seeing things happen left and right. There is, I, I would make the argument, that, but quantitatively, there are way more miracles happening in this season than happen in the whole life and ministry of Jesus. It's just happening day in day. I mean, literally every morning, 
even food that's provided is, is a sign of God's miraculous provision. The challenge of that, of course, is when God provides your cereal every morning in milk, you get to the point where you, you, you can take it for granted, right? But there's miracles happening left and right. God is speaking. Moses goes up with his brother Aaron and hears God speak the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments have been given in the hearing of Moses. God actually even makes it clear later. He says, look, just to accentuate some points for you, you can't have any other gods. Especially this. Don't make any gods out of silver and gold. That especially is going to get me upset. Got it? Got it. And so Moses and Aaron... uh, or back amongst the people, and then God calls them up into the mountain along with some other leaders like 70 elders and Moses and, and, and Joshua and Aaron, and then God begins to move and calls Moses up into the glory cloud. The people, all the people of Israel see fire and smoke on the mountain. And then, and then Moses is gone. And then we pick up the story in verse 32 where the people are saying, essentially... Um, You know that Moses guy, whatever happened to him? Now, keep in mind the fact that this is, you know, we're months after leaving Egypt and only days after Moses has left them. You know, more, no more than 40 days, maybe less than that. You know, probably 30 days or something after. They say, whatever came of that guy, Moses, that let us out, well, it's time to move on. And so they make a demand upon Moses' brother Aaron and say, look, we want, we want gods to lead us. We... We kind of remember how it was in Egypt. There were gods. There was always gods to consult about things. We want gods. Make us gods. And, and Aaron is a little bit, you know, you can see this whole story in chapter 32 in seven or eight segments. But Aaron, man, he's a sad case in this. And I'm really sympathetic as a guy who has to lead people. Um, you know, it's not always easy to, to meet the demands. And they're, they're demanding gods. And he's trying to buy time. So he's like, well, give me your gold. And, and, and we'll do something with it. And I, I don't know exactly how this calf gets constructed, either by wood and then gold plating or the whole thing's gold. And it's not clear who exactly fashions it. But it seems as though Aaron's goal is to use this golden calf as a way to appease them and point them back to Yahweh. That, that seems to be his goal. Point them to Jehovah. You know, you can see that in the words that he used. Tomorrow we're going to worship the Lord. And, but he loses control. They wake up the next day, they're just fervent, and they don't, they don't, they aren't pointed back to, to, to Yahweh, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're pointed towards this golden calf, and they begin to worship the golden calf. And if you, in, in, a, in a very PG-13 way, I'll tell you that if you were to break down the Hebrew text, um, it says that they, they began to sing and dance and play. Uh, think like Woodstock, <laughs> sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I mean, it's, it's, it's this, is the, in the Hebrew, it's pretty... It's pretty profane the way that, you know, what's going on. And so all of a sudden the story switches to God up on the mountain with Moses and God breaks in and tells Moses in the middle of a meeting. It's a very expansive meeting that God is having with Moses to lay a bunch of stuff out for him. And God's getting ready to transcribe his moral law onto tablets with his own hand or however you would think of that. And, and, and so... He breaks into this and says, hey, look, Moses, i got to tell you something. And this is, it, it's kind of funny the way the story works. I mean, the, the, the people of, of Israel, the, the, the Jewish people, are kind of like kids in the nursery across the hall. You know, after about 30 seconds of their parents being gone, they begin to worry if their parents are ever coming back and begin to maybe cry out. And God, on the other hand, 
is kind of like the, the father, the parent. You know, when the, you know when you have children and your children act up and you have to, like, if I go to Carol, I say, let me tell you about your children. So, mo- so God will not even, he will know, he's made covenantal promises to these people that are eternal promises, but now he says to Moses, your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, let me tell you what they're doing. And he lays it all out for Moses, and, and, and he says, I'm done. I'm done. I will not be mocked. If you go read Galatians 6 and you read, you know, what says there about God will not be mocked. You reap what you sow. If you sow sinful behavior, you'll reap sinful behavior. You sow righteous behavior, you'll, you'll sow righteous behavior. God's not just going to let you just do whatever you want forever. Eventually, you know, you, you pay for it. And so he says to Moses, look, I've done it before. I'll do it again. I'll just wipe them out and start clean with you. We'll clean the slate and I'll make a great nation out of you. And Moses says to the Lord, wait, time out. Let me remind you of a few things. And then he lays out for God, you know, look, you know, you brought them out of Egypt. What would the Egyptians say? Remember their promises that you made? God relents or it's, the Hebrew says essentially he almost has an emotional reaction. He regrets his feeling. Essentially, he ch- and he changes his mind, and he says, fine. He sends Moses down with the tablets, and now Moses, when he goes down with Joshua, hears this, Joshua thinks it's the sounds of war, but it's just that's how, you know, uh, uh, lathered up the whole party is. And when Moses sees what's going on, when he sees it with his eyes, this is the reason I think the Hebrew, do you know in the Hebrew that hearing is more important than seeing? You know, we say seeing is believing, but I think God recognized that seeing has such an emotional, we can have such a visceral reaction to things that we see. The Bible doesn't say to the Hebrew people, see, O Israel. It says, hear, O Israel. You know, and so when Moses sees what, what, he, what God's told him about, now he feels, he burnt, in fact, the Hebrew here says that he has the same exact emotional response that God had. He burns with anger. He breaks the stone tablets, and he says, we're going to have to deal with this, and he grounds this, he takes the gold, melts it down, grounds it into a dust, pours it into water, and says to them, you've made gods, consume your gods, drink your god. People drink the god, and then he confronts Aaron. Aaron basically says, I don't really know what happened. I was just hanging out with the people who were sitting around the fire, you know, just having a little conversation. And this calf jumped out, golden calf jumped out of the fire. And Moses says, you know, no, what really happened is you lost control of the people, and now I have to deal with it. He says, who's with me? Who's against me? The Levites join him. And people pay the ultimate price. There's a number of people, about 3,000 people of the maybe 1.2 million die that day as a result of this action. God then says, or, or Moses then says, look, I got to go back up and consult with the Lord. Because even though he's, he has promised me that he won't forget about you and wipe you out like he was considering, it doesn't mean he's forgiven you. So I'll go back up and I'll, and I'll ask his forgiveness and, and the, he goes back up before the Lord, and the Lord says, Moses does something that's, you want to talk about prefiguring Jesus. Moses goes up and says, put it on me. Forgive these people, and, and if, if, you know, if, what I'm asking you and what I'm offering to you is, let their sin be on me. Blot me out from your story so that you don't have to blot them out from your story. Forgive them and, and put it on me. And God says, I'm not going to do that, not yet. There's a time coming where I will do that, but not yet. But I will hold these people accountable. The angel will go ahead of you and lead you. But the people who have been, you know, trapped, there is an age or a day of accountability that's coming. And so that's essentially the story. Now, can I break it down for you? I want to give you maybe the simplest way sometimes to say 
what's going on here is kind of a, what does it say about people? What does it say about God? And then I want to bring it into the light of the New Testament. So I'm going to give you a few insights that I have. These are not really deep insights. Any one of you could get these same insights and maybe should get these same insights if you just read through it. So here, here they are. Okay, number one, we are sinful people, <laughs> right? I read a, 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 a Twitter feed from a friend of mine who happened to be talking about the same passage, and, and uh, he's, a, he's, he's something of an expert on this area. And I love what he says about it. He says, nothing showcases the sinful nature of man more painfully than the story of the golden calf. Adultery happening during the actual wedding. Isn't that a startling way to think about this? That this is unfaithfulness during the wedding. And he says, this was a catastrophe so severe as to stand shoulder to shoulder with the fall of mankind in the garden and the destruction of the world by the flood. That's how significant this is. This is such a massive story in the course of, the, of God's whole covenantal story with people that God was willing and able and ready to start over again, you know, like he'd done before. And so it just points out to us how crazy simple it is for us to, to be to be. Or to be captivated by this sinful nature. Simple insight. Second, we crazy. We are some crazy people. We are some seriously crazy people. In this first verse, if you go back to that first verse, I, this, this is so. I, I could just I could preach a series of messages out of this one verse. It's so crazy to me. Some of the things that are said there. I, the reason I like the ESV is because it says up. See where it says up, make us gods? You might have a translation that says something like come, let us make gods. And it sounds so inviting almost. Like it's like this is what we're going to do today. But this word that's used in Hebrew actually is the, all the people assemble and they say get up and make us a god. I mean, it is so hostile. It is so full of emotion and so, so much bitterness. And, and then it's full of accusation. What it says is, this God who did all this stuff for us and brought us out here has brought us out here to die. And so make us a God that will lead us. This Moses guy, whoever he is, who, who, who did all this stuff, who was the diviner, he was the one that, that we were understanding that he's gone, this God's gone, we're ready to move on. And, and what they have to say, it's actually, it makes no sense. What they, what, what they, what they should say is, Moses is gone, so make, give us another leader. Or, God is gone, give us another God. But what they say is, Moses is gone, give us a God. It's, it, it tells us something about the way they view Moses. And, and it tells us something, maybe I'm going to skip out of the, what it says about them and what, it, and what it says about us today. I had a conversation just before church started with, a, with somebody who was, we were talking about the need for, our, for people to be, the, the, the distributed responsibility that we all have gifts and we all have to play those out. It's not just about a pastor on a stage, you know, doing all the stuff. And this person was telling me, that somebody actually had come to him and said, if it wasn't for you, I you know, we would have left this church long ago. And I say, good. <laughs> Amen. Because if anybody here is going to remain in this church because of my preaching, you won't stay long. Or because of Brian's worship leading, you won't stay long. Eventually, he'll play a song you don't like or he'll mess up. And eventually, I'll say something that steps on your toes or it just isn't right compared to you know, your image of God. And, and it'll, it'll, it'll usher you out. It, we cannot have a personality cult. 
Every one of you has a responsibility as believers to stand up and, 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 and to stand firm for, you know, for the truth. And what this shows me is these people have, have, have wrapped all of their faith up in Moses representing, representing God to them. And it doesn't stand on, on its own two feet. Ultimately, this keeps Moses out of the promised land. I don't have time to go into that in, in breaking down the whole story. But I can tell you in, in summary form that when Moses strikes the rock, it, 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 the risk here is, is that people would see Moses as God, not God as God. And it, and it keeps Moses out of the promised land. So we're crazy. We are crazy people. I, don't, I, I mean, and this is what we do. If left to our own devices, we look to the people who lead us to, re, to be God for us. And so third, we build puny gods. Don't we? Think about it. If you, can, if, if, if you build a god that can be ground down to dust and swallowed with water, that says something about the size of the god you built. You know, here's the, here's the truth about idols. Whatever idol, whatever gods we make, this, this blows me away. Whatever gods that we end up making actually have less power than us. They don't just have less power than God. They have less power than us. Think about that. You make a God to fill in a, a spot in your life, and that God that you've constructed is so incapable of holding you up when you, when you need that God that it doesn't even have, the, it doesn't come near the power of the real God. It doesn't even have the power that you have. This God that they've fashioned is consumable. Like, like uh, Capri Sun or, or Kool-Aid mix. What kind of God is that? Okay, another insight, another simple one. This one I think you'll get really simply. Here it is. Miracles wear off quickly, right? You cannot, I love signs and wonders. I I think we are, I mean, Jesus makes so many prominence, futuristic promises about the way our ministry will be accompanied by signs and wonders that I cannot let go of that. I believe that's a massive thing. But I'm telling you, you cannot build your faith on miracles, you have to build it on trust and believing that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he'll do. He is who he said he was. He is who he said he is, and he is who he says he will be. Not on, on the latest miracle, because miracles wear off quickly. If somebody had a leg regenerated today, here, I, don't, I think even if we had it posted on CNN and Fox News and all that tonight, most people would discredit it. Even people who are here might discredit it. it. We cannot base our whole, you know, most people believe that if God performed a miracle, just one miracle for them, then they would surely and permanently believe in God. But human nature doesn't work that way. The power of witnessing a miracle wears off, and most individuals soon need or merely want or require another miracle to replace the last one. It's very much so, what have you done for me lately? And so, therefore, the Torah repeatedly emphasizes the need for Jews to remember the exodus. Not the miracles, but the, but the exodus. Without constantly reminding themselves, you know, uh, uh, through study and prayer and ritual, like most obviously the Passover Seder, it, God knows that most Jews would have long ago forgotten what he'd done for them. So in many ways, what's way more important than the miraculous is gratitude. Gratitude is way more important. It may be the most important of all of our good character traits. It's the most indispensable trace to both happiness and goodness. Okay? Let me just say it in this way, tying it to miracles. Here you go. Here's a, here's a if you want like a tagline you can capture from a message. Here it is. I actually wrote it down and highlighted it. 
You can't be a happy person or a good person without gratitude. You can't be a happy person or even a good person without gratitude. The less gratitude you have, the more you begin to see yourself as a victim. And, and, and not that I have anything against people who have you know, been victimized. I'm not saying that you, know, you have to, be, you know, to, to act as though things haven't happened. But the more that you lose this, the more you begin to see yourself with this mentality. And nothing is more likely to produce a bad you know, personality or a bad group than defining the group, having a group that is identified predominantly as victims, which is exactly what's happened in Israel with, in, in Exodus 32. Having been hurt, we too often believe that we... This, I see this every day in ministry. When you begin to identify your life this way, you then believe that you have been granted a license to hurt others. Hurt people, hurt people. As for the happiness part, think of the people that you know. And I assure you, you will not be able to name one person who is ungrateful and happy. They're, too, they're, they're mutually exclusive, you know, traits. But gratitude, it's, 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 a, it's not easy to sustain it. Just about everybody is grateful when, something, when, when, when a miracle happens, when somebody does something particularly kind or good for them. But the more time passes, the less gratitude we tend to have. We, we begin to lose our, our sense of thankfulness as we, it's like a, what do you call that in, in, in the tax world when you, uh, you have an asset? Oh, it's depreciating your asset over time. Our gratitude gets depreciated as, as we use up the gift. And most people remember the bad that's been done to them far longer than the good that's been done to them. Not any of you all, but most people. <laughs> it took the Israelites all of two months to forget the greatest set of miracles that's ever been performed for a people group. And we think that something that God does for us is going to sustain us for, for, uh, for the rest of our lives if we unhinge it from faith and gratitude. All right, I'm going to leave those behind. What does this say about God? Well, um, I already mentioned one to you. It says, it says clearly, if you look at verse 10, that God will not be mocked. Um, we're, we're, and I'll read you verse 10 out of this. So you don't, we don't have it up on the screen. It says, um, oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. It says, verse 9 and 10, I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Here's the thing. It's hard to read passages like that, isn't it? But when I read the Bible from cover to cover and I get the entire story of God's love, I have to be confronted by, by the reality of God's character and nature that he will not be mocked. And that we, we reap what we sow. Um, it also says something that I think is extraordinarily beautiful and valuable for us to grapple with. Is particularly if we're believers. I don't know how this works for people who don't believe in him. But I know how it works for those who do. And here's the point. He, God will allow believers to argue with him. That's good news. That's some good news for you. It, Moses actually argues with God. In, in a way that's very profound to me. He, he offers three arguments to God. He says, first of all, to God, he says, <laughs> he turns God's logic back on him. He says, why should your anger burn against, <clears throat> against your people who you brought out of Egypt? He says, these aren't my people. These are your people. What, which is true? Are they God's people or Moses' people? They're God's people. 
So he reminds God, these, you might be mad at them, but they're your people, not mine. Second argument Moses makes with God is he says, why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, anger relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. He says to God, your reputation, your honor is at stake amongst the nations. There is a, there's a, 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 a opposing... Uh, doctrines within the, 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 the Jewish mindset and the Torah that says um, basically that, that, that you can consecrate or bless God's name or you can desecrate God's name. Actions will do one or the other. And what Moses is accusing God of doing is actually desecrating his own name by his actions. He's saying for you to do this would be for you to, 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 to ruin your reputation. You said you were saving these people from from Egypt, but the Egyptians would be able to look at this and go, actually, we treated them better than you did. And so he calls into, into, into question God's name and reputation. Think about that. Think about the, 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 a person, you know, standing before an omnipotent, all-knowing, always existing God and saying, I call your reputation into question. The third argument that Moses makes is he simply says he appeals to God on the basis of his promise. He says, you're the one that made the promise. These are your people. This is your name, and this is your promise. And, and, and of course, most commentators actually believe that God never had any intention to do this, that this was, in, in essence, a way to, in, to, to, to help Moses see the gravity of, of what was going on. Um, but even if he did, uh, it's beautiful to me that God allows this sort of, of, of thing to happen. The, the, the Torah makes it clear, and the New Testament s- supports that, it, that every believer is allowed to argue with God. There's not a hint in the Bible that God finds arguing with him ob- objectionable or sinful. And on the contrary, it, what it does for me is it makes God all the more real and all the more believable, and the Bible way more rational and way more believable that I can go, wow, I can actually go and talk to this God, and I can lay my case before him, and he'll talk with me. This, this is something I think is very good news. Third thing it says to me about God, God is forgiving. Moses offers himself, as I said in verses 31 to 33 of this, and says, look, God, um, I know that you're not going to wipe them out, but you got to forgive them and move on. I know they've committed a great sin. They made themselves gods of gold, which is a very particular thing you told them not to do. But now forgive them. And if not, if you can't do that, then blot me out. Use me. And, and God says, okay, I'll forgive them, but not on the basis of you. Third or fourth thing, God will hold us accountable. I've made this point already. When the time comes, God says, I'll deal with this. He says essentially this. Well, let me ask you this question. If you get a ticket on the way home for driving too slow, I just, you know, if you get a ticket on the, on the way home for breaking some traffic law, who's responsible for paying that fine? Who? You are, right? Don't give it to me, right? And so God is saying essentially, hey, I can't take your, you, you know, you're responsible for this. This is, the, this is the weight of this. But then he's saying, Moses, you've made me an offer. I won't take your offer, but I do have a plan that's actually better than your offer. When the time comes, I'll deal with this once and for all. All right. Well, if we lose, if we lose sight of that, of who God is, uh, you know, the effects of that can continue for generations. I think this is what 
what God's dealing with. This is the reason that Israel ends up staying in the wilderness much longer than I think they needed to is because God has to eradicate you know, uh, uh, you know, unbelief and, and, and people who should have made their way into the promised land don't. And, and you know, we can see proof of that today. I, you know, I talk a lot to friends of mine who in other nations, particularly European nations, nations with a Christian heritage where the worship is, of God has become a ritualized memory. And what they oftentimes tell me uh, is that, you know, when you complain about the things you see happening in the church in America, you're just like 50 years behind what's happening in Europe. And so, you know, Wake, wake up. Wake your people up. God, God reminds us in this passage, though, that, 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 that he, he shows his said his love uh, to, to thousands who love him and obey him. And if you set aside your false images and you seek me with all your heart, then, then you can have a, a restored, life-giving relationship with me. And so can I just wrap up for a few minutes by answering a question? Is that Okay. Here's the question I have. Well, what kinds of false images, what kinds of idols might harm us today? Let's bring it into today. I mean, should we not have a cross on the wall of the church or a picture of Jesus or light some candles? Uh, well, of course, we shouldn't worship. We don't worship that symbol that's back behind us. Uh, but there are other things that we're tempted to substitute for God. Most of you, okay, pay attention here because now I'm really going to get you. Most of you, are tempted by mental images. Graven images that you engrave on your mind. Every person has a mental image of God. Every, even people who don't believe in God or, or the existence of God have a mental image of the God they don't believe in. So quick question. You think of God as an old man, like Michelangelo's artwork on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel? Some people have a mental image of God as harsh and judgmental and ready to condemn every little mistake. Other people have a, 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 an image of God as a pretty laid-back Morgan Freeman kind of God, like the movies. Some people have the image of God like Santa Claus, keeping track of who's naughty or nice and bringing gifts for all the nice ones like themselves and punishing the naughty ones like the people they don't like. Some people think of God as a distant, impersonal force or, or as their own consciousness within, or a collective consciousness, or as nature. And the way in which we view God shapes the way we behave. It, sh- it actually shapes our moral behavior. The way we live our lives day in and day out, when people are looking and when no one's looking, is deeply shaped by how we view God. A famous preacher told a story. Uh, he sat next to a young lady on a flight from Chicago to California, and she was really open about her, about her lifestyle, which included actions that were both immoral and illegal. And eventually he says to her, how do you square up your lifestyle with God's will and his wisdom and his word? Pretty good question. And she said, well, my God is the grandfatherly type who loves me and takes care of me and tells me I'm okay. He doesn't much care what I do. So here's the question. Did her image of God lead her astray or did her lifestyle distort her view of God? I don't know, but the two are connected. Even Christians are tempted to create an image of God that reflects their own thinking. You, here's another line. If you want a line from a message, here, here's one that I have underlined for myself to remember. You can pretty much assume that you've created a God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do.
pretty much a guarantee you've created a graven image of God when he hates all the same people you do. God's really clear. Don't create images to represent me and don't worship any image that distorts who I am. So how do you keep that commandment? You know, we all have mental images. How else could we conceive of him? We have to, you know, when we close our eyes, what do we see? Who do we pray to? Yet we, we can never substitute that image of God for God himself. And that might sound confusing to you, but if you're married, look, I want to make clear something. If you're not married, it's, it's, it's not a curse. It's, it's, it's okay to be single. It's actually in the New Testament, a higher order of living. But I'm using this for illustrative purposes. If you're married, you know what I'm talking about. If you think you have your husband or wife all figured out, it's a sure sign you don't really know them, right? There's always more to know. And to keep this commandment of, of not making you know, graven images or idols, we begin by evaluating the images of God that we do have. Are they true images or are they biased in some way? There's all kinds of biases that sink in. Like, I have family biases. Many of us grew up like I did in, you know, quasi-religious home, and I was taught things about God, and I brought that into my adulthood. Or I have cultural biases. Some of us have seen pictures of Jesus with blonde hair and blue eyes, so we think Jesus is a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jew, which is a little more common today, but it wasn't very common in Jesus' day. We have personal biases, which might influence how we see God. The God of, <clears throat> of many people could be des- described as the God that I would like to worship, you know, he, he's a, he, oftentimes a God whose greatest goal is to make us happy. And if he doesn't meet our expectations, then we feel somehow like he let us down. And, and it, if it's our image of God that's failed us, not God. And so we're all sometimes influenced by, like, politics and identity. We have to be reminded that God isn't either a Republican or a Democrat. He might not agree with everything that you, you think or assume to be true about free enterprise or socialism or democracy or whatever. Imagine that, that God doesn't fit into your tribe or your silo. So to keep the commandments about not substituting our own images for God, we have to continually seek to know him better. How do you do that? Well, a good starting place is the Bible, (laughs) the entire Bible, not just the parts you like to read. But our, our goal shouldn't be only to learn how to have a better life, to live our best life now, but to actually to know God better. The word of God is our ultimate authority. I would say that the most significant basis and argument I could give for you for creating a right image of God would be to understand and to accept the authority of Scripture. To read it for what it is and as simply as you can obey what it, what it, what it lays before you. God is revealed in the Bible through his actions and his words. He's the powerful creator of our universe and humanity. He reaches out to Abraham and makes an everlasting covenant. He frees his people from the bondage of Egypt. He cares for them in the wilderness. He's powerful and he's holy and he sometimes is scary. Yet he shows his love to thousands. He teaches his people both about personal morality and social justice. He brings his people into a good land and when they disobey, he sends them into exile. Yet God doesn't forget the covenant and in the fullness of time, God himself comes to earth and God was revealed most clearly in a man named Jesus it says in John 1 1 and in verse 14 in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us we've seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the father full of grace and truth when we read about Jesus we better understand the grace and truth of God we understand his love in the sense that God sends his son to save us. We understand God's justice in the sense that God punishes sin on the cross. We understand the glory and power of God that Jesus rises from the dead. 
And then as we begin to open our heart to this revelation, God begins to come to us more personally in the person of the Holy Spirit. And as we live by the Spirit, we have this deeper and deeper understanding of, guess what? The goodness of God. If you ever think God is an ethnic, uh, has an ethnic bias towards the Jewish people, you haven't read Exodus 32. God's not an ethnic chauvinist. He doesn't look at these people and go, I'll give them some special favor that other people don't get. He, He actually says, I care more about goodness than these people I've chosen. I've made this world to be good. And they, if they're not good, I'll, I'll start over. And so as we live by the spirit, we get a deeper understanding of that goodness. And we see the fruit of the spirit and love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faith, and the self-control. We get a taste of what it is to be with God forever and, and, and live in this eternal light of, of righteousness and fellowship with God. And when we fellowship with his people and when we are continually learning and getting to know God better, worship comes alive. We begin to, to take our hands out of our pockets and rise up and realize the fact that we can come before him with rejoicing and trembling. And it combines in this thing where you can no longer sit still or just look at the words where you're like, I have to do something. I have to say something. I can't keep this within. We have this continual hunger and thirst for God, the true one living God, and we will not be satisfied with substitute images. Accept no substitutes. If you've got anything, any God that's in your life that you can consume like Kool-Aid, get rid of him. Brian, come on up. I want to read a passage of scripture as a prophetic promise or word over us. As a con- it's a Maranatha word. Because when you bring this fully into the light of the New Testament, I, here's my encouragement to you. How many of you still have cable TV? <laughs> okay, rip it out this afternoon. Or pretend that it's not working. And pretend that your internet's gone and you have no other options today but to open the Bible. Here's what I want you to do. Just go read the book of Hebrews. Go read how God reconciles this idea of a mediator and and sacrifice and covenant and priestly order with Jesus. Read the words of how God, through this one man, Jesus, offers us something that is, he doesn't eradicate the, the law, particularly the moral law, but what he does is he says, I'm offering you a better covenant. Something that actually is done once and for all. And, and if you think, man, because I think there's an inclination for us to go, there was a day when I knew God. I think that when the people of Israel say, what happened to Moses, make us another God, they're looking for a God that's a leader. We have that in the person of Jesus. And I think that some of us, when we look at our life in Christ and we go, I remember what you did for me one day, but I haven't heard from you in a long time. And so what I'm doing in your place is I'm making up little gods that are consumable. My encouragement to you is to take these words that I'm going to read to you out of Hebrews 10 as a promise over your life of what God wants to do with you with regards to his presence. I'm going to read these, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to kneel at at the altar. Would you stand with me if you're able? Hebrews 10, verses 15 to 25. They're not up on the screen. You don't need to see them. I I encourage you to close your eyes and receive this as a promise over you. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. 
For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers and and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so, Father, we claim that Maranatha word as our own, that you have indeed come and once and for all made a way for us to enter into this holy place with you. We don't need to worry like the people of Israel did where Moses had gone because we have been invited to the mountain. You call us up to the holy place. And we don't need to worry like the people of Israel did if Moses was ever coming back because you have promised us, you have shown us with signs and wonders and with the institution of a people called the body of Christ who who, who live in gratitude and confession of who you are that there is a day coming soon where you are drawing near to us. You're coming. You're on your way. And so, Father, I pray confidence over my brothers and sisters. Claim that as a sign and wonder. And I ask, Lord, that you would put your word in our hearts as the image of you. We renounce all lesser gods that are consumable. We want you and you alone. Come forward as you feel led. Spoke of water. 